Hey Cindy, guess what? What? We now have an Alexa skill on the Amazon Alexa skill marketplace. Really? It's That's cool. It's called Dream 10X. So all you got to do is search for Amazon Alexa skills and then there, once they're on that website, search for Dream 10X and you can enable the Dream 10X podcast player. And so it provides a voice user interface to our podcast so you can control it with your voice. You can say, Alexa, tell Dream 10X to find episodes about money. I found one match for money. Episode 20, The Snowball by Alice Schroeder. That's so cool. on the Oracle of Omaha. Alexa, tell Dream 10X to tell me more about episode 20. Here is a summary of episode 20, The Snowball by Alice Schroeder. Meditations on the Oracle of Omaha. Can you imagine being a stockbroker in 1929 during one of the largest stock market crashes in American history? No. Howard Buffett. Warren Buffett's dad. Wow. So Alexa, you can search for different keywords that are really exciting. And or that interest you. That interest yeah. you. And then you can have Alexa find those podcasts that are relevant. Yeah. And then, and then of course, you can play them. And get a summary about them. Yeah. What a great tool. <laughs> Thanks. It's written in Python, if anybody cares. It's Python Alexa skill. It was a lot of fun to write, sort of. But check it out. Hi, and thank you for listening to Dream 10X Radio, where we interview people attempting to live extraordinary lives. Our twofold purpose is to both direct and inspire people bold enough to do the same. Dream 10X. Face your fears. And make your life count. Hello, Dream 10X world. It's your boy, JC. And Dr. C. <laughs> How's it going? Good. How are you doing? Good. Oh, I wasn't asking you. I was asking our listeners. Oh. But, but you can respond for them. That's well, great. since I'm sitting in the room, I our, thought it was kind of no. nice to respond. Hello, you asked me about my day. <laughs> I was asking for our listener. <laughs> <laughs> hey, welcome to episode 21. Hey, and... Claudia, our listener. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Claudia. Escribano. We heard that she listens on occasion, so that, that's really cool. Um, for this week, we're uh, reviewing a book that I read called The Ride of a Lifetime by Robert Iger. Who's Robert Iger? He's my hero. Now he's your hero. Yeah. Now that I listen to his master class like five times. Who is he? He's the CEO of Disney. Bob, Robert, I want to call him Bob, but it's Mr. Iger, I guess, for us. <laughs> but Robert Iger is the CEO of Disney. And um, I wanted to kind of analyze his career arc for this podcast and, and look at the jobs he held and, and how he progressed throughout his career to be, eventually become the CEO of Disney. Just out of curiosity, um, see if there's something I can learn there. I found it really fascinating that he started his career at ABC, which um, ABC stands for the American Broadcasting Company. And he's essentially been with the same company now for 45 years. I can't imagine that. Can you? 45 <laughs> years with the, basically the same company. Yeah. And um, there's just been a lot of, I guess you could call it metaphorical, metaphorical waves rolling through the company. And he's like ridden every single wave. And eventually these waves have taken him to the very top of, well, the Disney Corporation. So the way it happened for him is uh, he had an uncle who had some eye surgery and was in the hospital. He went to go visit his uncle 
and his roommate in the hospital was this guy who's pretending to be a bigwig executive at ABC. And his uncle <coughs> mentioned to this uh, alleged bigwig ABC executive that his, that his nephew is looking for a job in New York. And to play, play his role up a little bit better, he said, you know, there's no, no problem. I'll get him a job at ABC. No, no big deal. So he did. He eventually got him a job at ABC, but come to find out he wasn't a big, big wig executive. Nevertheless, he was able to get him a job. And uh, he became um, a studio supervisor at ABC in uh, 1974. Prior to that, he was uh, a news weatherman for a tiny station in Ithaca, New York. No kidding! I didn't know that. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So this guy who was pretending to be a bigwig got him in the door at ABC, got him into a very low-level, entry-level position. Mm -hmm. And the way he puts it in the book is he basically started out at the lowest rung on the ladder at ABC for yeah. his, his first job there. Wow. So um, basically started out, you know, getting coffee and doing all these things for various shows and game shows that ABC was hosting at the time. I don't remember all, all the exact uh, show names, but that's basically what he was doing. And uh, he was making about $150 a week there when he first started out. In 1974. Yeah, so and uh, seems to relish his quiet time, uh, likes to think and read and, and exercise in those early morning hours. Yeah, he said <clears> in the master class that he like gets up at like 4.15, as you said, and then um, he likes to work out in the dark, which I found really interesting. Why? Because <coughs> he says he like has the space to think and process, and he like listens to quiet music, but he likes to be in the dark when he works out. Huh. Tell me more, what, what master class are you talking about? So, master class if you guys don't know, is a fantastic platform where they interview successful people from all kinds of genres, from music to business people to creative arts. It's just awesome. And so I have an annual subscription, and that's what I listen to when I'm walking the dog or running because that's how I learn. Hmm. And uh, so I've listened to the Bob Iger one three times now. And I just love it. Um, mm. So Masterclass is a, a really awesome mechanism to gain information in short microbytes. Do you find Masterclass beneficial? Are you learning stuff from it? Oh, yeah. So there's a gardening one that's awesome. And the um, head of Vogue, like I've learned so much from her. I really like, I would love to, to talk with her more about some of her strategies for creative development. Um, yeah, I've learned so much. Yeah, there's, mm -hmm. the, I also subscribe, but I haven't listened to any classes. Uh, although I did listen to Sarah Blakely's class. Oh, you love that. And I found that really pretty informative. Yeah. yeah. So um, I am also interested in listening to that Gary Kasparov, Learn to Play Chess. Oh, yeah, that one looks <laughs> Probably really not good. from a beginner's perspective. But <laughs> 
that one looks good. Um, there's a Tony Hawk one on how to skate. I that wanna, one's really good. I want to do that. Yeah. We, want, we listened to the Armin one together. Armin Van Buren yeah. one. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, Judy Bloom had a great one on writing, <laughs> which I really appreciated from being a teenager read, or a teenager in like elementary school reading her books. So, uh-huh. yeah. Dead Mouse is on there too. So anyway. cool. So the, the Robert Iger one is good. Yeah. You like that? I love it. Okay. Sweet. So um, more on why he likes to get up in the morning, which stuck out on, stuck out at me on page nine. He says, however you find the time, it's vital to create space in each day to let your thoughts wander mm-hmm. beyond your immediate job responsibilities, to turn things over in your mind in a less pressured, more creative way than is possible once the daily triage kicks in. He said the same thing in the yeah. master class, which... Yeah, that's one thing. Like, we just don't have that in U.S. culture. We don't have the space to just think. Yeah. So um, we've talked about that before. And here it is again. It's important to find space in your professional life, in your life, to just think. Mm-hmm. Um, so then uh, he runs into an ethics conflict with, his, with one of his bosses. And he discovers that his boss is not acting ethically and using uh, company resources for his own personal gain Um, basically his boss identifies him as having uh, an awareness of his pretty illegal activities Mm -hmm. and and overtly threatens him and says look you're not promotable anymore you you need to go look for another job wow (laughs) so at that point he he looks internally um on the internal ABC job listing and finds an opening at ABC Sports. And so he applies for a job there and he ultimately gets it. And um, as fate would have it, ABC Sports was one of the more profitable areas of ABC. Um, but ABC's wide world of sports. You remember, remember oh, that I remember football? that. Yep. Spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sports. Yeah, you know, that the guy like totally wrecking on the uh, downhill skiing thing. Yeah, at the, at the I'm intro. hearing the theme song right now. <laughs> yeah, so that organ, that outfit made a lot of money, and um, they kind of lived high on the hog. He traveled all over the world working for ABC Sports, and um, just seemed to be a really good experience for him. He uh, he worked for a guy named Rune Arledge. I forget exactly what his role was there, but he was a big mentor for him and really a stickler for production and details. And so he mentions that uh, Mr. Arledge taught him a lot about the need to strive for excellence. And so he kind of a lot of that, those ideals from this guy early on at ABC. Uh, one of the things he says that Rune Arledge says was, said was, do what you need to do to make it better. Do whatever you need to do to make something better. So that's, that jumped out at me too because I really I like that idea. Like really seek excellence in whatever you do and try to do whatever you can do to make it better. I love that. And he mentions that um, because of that theme, he kind of latched on to the Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Oh, no kidding. We saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And how the sushi maker spends years and years and years fine-tuning his sushi making craft Mm -hmm. and how his sushi is so expensive because it's such a well-crafted delicacy it's art (laughs) and in fact he showed that movie to um, a number of people within the company to kind of share that mentality of you know 
attention to detail and excellence and how important that is. Oh my gosh, I love that. And from a learning perspective, what a great tool. Yeah, um, there's a, he, he mentions a concept called skokunin, which I think is a Japanese concept as well, which means the endless pursuit of perfection for some greater good, Ooh. skokunin. And he tied that to the, the movie Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which is a really excellent movie in and of itself. So I really liked all those ideas right there. The endless pursuit of perfection for some greater good. Love that. All right. So he eventually becomes the VP of ABC Sports at age 35. He's only 35 and now he's the VP. I can't even imagine. But then his life was about to really change when... Capital Cities Communications comes onto the scene. Capital Cities Communications is this little tiny um, media company in the New York area. And they make a bid to buy ABC. Hmm. <laughs> this, is so, this is such a great story. Uh, it's, it's really underplayed, I think, the, the magnitude of what actually happened. But uh, in the book, anyway. Um, Capital Cities Communications was headed by two guys uh, named Tom Murphy and Dan Burke. And these guys happened to be friends with Warren Buffett. Tab back into Warren. <laughs> yeah, so segue back to episode 20 where we talk about Warren Buffett. Here he is again um, having a huge impact on the future of the Disney Corporation. That's incredible. Vis-a-vis Cap Cities, vis-a-vis ABC. ABC. Mm-hmm. So these guys, Cap Cities Communications, make a bid for ABC, and they're able to pull off the purchase for $3.5 billion. And so they're like a nobody. They came out of nowhere. ABC is like this huge conglomerate, and... Um, they weren't expecting them to be able to come out of nowhere in the small little company and buy them, but they were able to. They, they ultimately bought them for three and a half billion from uh, backing by Warren Buffett. And so Tom Murphy and Dan Burke then they had a lot of the meat and potatoes, down home, midwestern kind of idealism that Warren Buffett had. So they they all kind of were the and they were very frugal. Mm. And so when they purchased the company, they, um, you know, they took away a lot of the big spending, idea, the big spending habits that um, certain uh, segments had, like ABC Sports. And so all of a sudden, everybody had to start cutting back, and there was this, they built a lot of resentment in the company because of that. But this was one of the core reasons that they were so successful and why they were able to be- grow so quickly is because of their frugal... Uh, you know, mentality. Eventually, um, Bob Iger gets noticed by Tom Murphy and Dan Burke. Um, He's participating in uh, the Calgary Olympics that ABC Sports is covering, and he gets noticed by the way he handles things at the Olympics. Uh, Tom and Dan notice Bob uh, Robert Iger at at the Olympics, and they say, "Hey, we really like how you handled the Olympics in Calgary. We'd like you to come in and uh, be the head of ESPN." 
Wow. Yeah, so now he's only 37 years yeah. old. So, so two years after becoming the VP of ABC Sports, he's now head of ESPN. Um, and now he has Tom Murphy and Dan Burke in his corner backing his career. Unbelievable. And so now his train is just really starting to roll down the tracks. Yeah. And uh, what's really important here is that is is that the the idea that your career is you know it's not just you running things you need support from people mm-hmm. and he was able to garner the support of really two strong heavy hitters I mean these guys are friends with Warren Buffett so he, he basically came out of nowhere and got backing by these two two huge guys all right so head of ESPN now um, and soon thereafter he becomes the uh, head of ABC Entertainment. Uh, when the uh, previous head got fired, and Tom and, and Tom Murphy and Dan Burke said, "Hey, we want you to take this guy's position. We just fired him. We want you to move out to LA and become the head of ABC Entertainment." So again, those two guys are saying, "Hey, we like what we like what you're doing. We like how you're doing it. We want you to move up into this other role." And so when he was at ABC Entertainment, this is when he and his team started pumping out shows like Twin Peaks. Oh, I loved that show in the 80s. Yeah? Yeah. Never saw it. Who killed Laura? Um, Yeah, he mentioned that. That was like a really famous phrase. Oh, yeah. I had no idea what what they were talking about. Cop Rocks. Oh, I saw that too. Really? Mm -hmm. Wasn't that kind of stupid? Oh, it was totally cheesy, but I like cheese. Doogie Howser? (laughs) He did Doogie Howser. I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then in 1992, the president, the president, El Presidente of ABC retires. And guess who Dan Burke wants to make as president of ABC? Bob Iger. <laughs> Robert <laughs> Iger. So, uh, unfortunately, though, that position is back in New York City. So ah. he's out in L.A. doing this thing. It's like, hey, will you come to New York City now and be the president of ABC? He's like, all right, I'll do that. He's 43 years old. He's 43 years old. (laughs) That's 1992. Then, two years later, 1994, Tom Murphy tapped Iger to be the president and CEO role of Cap Cities ABC when the incumbent retired there. So he's just rolling. He's just getting at this point. They're just pushing him further and further up the mm-hmm. chain. And it's basically these two guys. I mean, I can't imagine that you're making that much of a a chain a difference in a, a year or two in your career. <laughs> but they like what he's doing. They like who he is, and they're pushing him up the the corporate ladder there. And the the other really interesting thing to me that happened at that time. So now this is '94. He's the president and CEO, COO of Cap Cities ABC. And they are they take a trip to Sun Valley, Idaho. Remember me talking about that in in context of Warren Buffett. That, Can you refresh? And in, in the snowball, the book that we talked about last episode opens with Warren Buffett and his family getting off of their personal jet at Sun Valley, Idaho to go to this Allen and Company retreat that they have every summer. So it's the same place. So now he's at the same place. Wow. Um, Because apparently if you've got a lot of money, a lot of power, this is where everybody goes. If you you get an invite, this is where you go. 
Like, no, I don't know of anybody who really turns this down. So he's in, he's now in Sun Valley. He sees Michael Eisner, who is the then CEO of Walt Disney, mm -hmm. talking to Tom Murphy and Warren Buffett in the parking lot. And um, at that time, he realizes they're talking about a possible acquisition. Mm. And it's really interesting how it segues, segues back to the snowball that we just read last episode. Wasn't planning that again, so it's kind of cool. So uh, this is 1994. They're in, they're in Sun Valley, Idaho, at the Allen & Company retreat. Eisner is there. They're rubbing shoulders with Tom Burke and Warren Buffett. I'm sure they're strategizing about an acquisition and how that would work and who would lead it and all that good stuff. And then sure enough, in 1995, Eisner and, and Disney buy Cap Cities. Cap City slash ABC. And they bring Iger on a five-year contract to be the potential second man in charge of, of Disney at that time. Incredible. I mean, how do you put together a career like that on purpose? <laughs> It's true. Yeah. That's just crazy. Um, so that acquisition of Cap Cities ABC almost doubled the, the size of Disney. So at that time, Eisner was already stretched really thin trying to manage everything. So it made sense that he should have a second in command to help, um, given the new size of the company. And so Robert Iger really wanted to be that second in command to help, you know, lead, lead this company. Um, but I don't think, based on my interpretation of the book, I don't think Eisner really trusted Iger for whatever reason. And mm. maybe he was like trying to keep him at arm's length because he didn't want him taking his job. Maybe he felt a little jealous of him, whatever. I don't know. But um, Eisner ended up bringing in this guy named Michael Ovitz. So I think Michael Ovitz was part of Universal, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. So he brought him in as the second, the second in command there as president. And apparently the guy did nothing. <laughs> this, is, this is such a great story. Uh, so he comes in as a second in command. Doesn't seem to be interested at all in what the company's doing. He's got his own. He's, he's rubbing elbows with presidents and Obama and, and uh, um, all these other big wigs and Michael Jackson and whoever, you know, but not really paying attention to his, his job. He ends up. After a while, everybody realizes that he's not really doing anything, so they usher him out the door. But, oh, by the way, he's going to get paid $100 million severance. Holy cow! So how do we do something like that? Right? <laughs> I'll fail. You do nothing. You basically get fired. You get paid $100 million. Um, Yeah, I, I think I'm totally looking at things wrong. <laughs> So then in 1999, um, Robert Iger takes a two-week vacation to Martha's Vineyard with his family, mm. and apparently it's the first two-week vacation that he's had in forever, if not the first time. He works so hard. Yeah, and right before he starts his vacation, he gets a call from Tom Murphy. Hey, Tom, I'm really sorry, but uh, Michael Eisner doesn't like you, and he said there's no way you're going to get hired. Is this, you're going to come on as a... a Either co CEO, so co CEO, or, or take take his role as CEO. Yeah, you got to get out of there. You got to, you just got to quit. 
And so this is the way he started his two-week vacation that he had. He's, oh, <laughs> man. It's probably good it was at the start of the vacation so he could sit in front. No! Who wants to do a beginning of a vacation with that news, man? Because you could, like, like, sit in process and think about what you want to do versus, like, being reactive. So it gives you a chance to... Yeah, I don't know. Think. I just read that. Was, that just made me sick. I was like, man, that's horrible. But the good news is he didn't talk about it during the vacation. I don't think his wife even knew about it. Mm -hmm. And he refused to quit. I love that. He refused to quit because he was due a bonus, <laughs> which is even better. Never quit when you're due a bonus. Plus that other guy left with a hundred million. Yeah. So <laughs> the message there is don't leave until you, until you line up that hundred million. Um, so yeah, he had a bonus coming and, um, he, he decided not to quit, and he, he said, you know, if Eisner wants to fire me, he's got to do it to my face, which I love. Yeah. That, was, that was really ballsy. I love that. And so Michael Eisner eventually did not fire him, and in fact, uh, he eventually asked him to <laughs> go back out to L.A. to um, help run, run Disney. But their relationship was always kind of tenuous, um, but, and I, I think for those reasons that he wasn't sure how to, he, Eisner, I think didn't really, he was scared of getting eclipsed by, mm. by his, his mentor, I think. Um, I'm not really sure, but that's what it seemed like. Um, and the interesting thing then at this time, now that he's kind of a number two man at Disney, maybe not, I don't know, but, um, he's out in LA and then uh, Roy Disney starts getting upset with the way that Eisner is running the company. Hmm. And he's really upset that Michael Eisner had them buy Capital Cities because really? Capital Cities doesn't, it's not a Disney brand. It's not, it had nothing. He was worried about that company tainting the company's bloodstream, yeah. <laughs> the pure Disney bloodstream. So he didn't really like Eisner. And, um, but Disney was still on the board and then Eisner figured out a way that, oh, you're 70 years old now and because of our laws, you shouldn't be on our board anymore. So somehow he figured out a way to get Whoa. Roy Disney off of the board and that made him even more mad. Yeah. So Roy Disney and his lawyer waged this holy war against Eisner outside the company and went to the media and, you know, it just got really messy. So uh, Eisner became kind of persona non grata at that time. Um, and um, that kind of cleared the way for Robert Iger to then become CEO. However, they had to go through, the company had to go through a whole bunch of, you know, interviews and um, they had to hire headhunters to, executive headhunters to bring in candidates to mm -hmm. interview. And it just took a whole long time and uh, really painful process. But at the end of it, Robert Iger eventually becomes the CEO of Disney. Yeah, in the in the masterclass, he says, "I was the only internal candidate." Only internal candidate. Yeah, yeah. that's unbelievable. Yeah, in fact, uh, there was a Meg Whitman. Oh, oh, I like her. She was one of the candidates yeah. for, for CEO. So yeah, so now here here he is, head of, head of Disney. I don't think you can duplicate that. No, <laughs> I don't think you can duplicate yeah. that career path. But it's really interesting to look at and and just to kind of marvel at. 
And I wonder how he was developed through that process. Because obviously, you know, maybe he was just very natural at being able to lead. Obviously. Uh, I mean, it, you have to be. Yeah, but he talks about, like, in the masterclass, one thing that really struck me was leading with creativity and creating that strategy first. And he had, when he was in line to take over as the presidency and he had to compete against all these people one of his colleagues and outside of disney came to him and said all right what's your strategy for making disney amazing mm -hmm. and uh, apparently bob Iger was listing all these things and mm -hmm. the guy like did a fake yawn and said no you need like three things yeah. and this is what you're focusing on and like the, one of the top things is creativity and yeah. so for me that spoke volumes to me. And so, you know, I mentioned Claudia at the beginning because listening to this podcast, like she totally came to mind over and over again because she's literally one of the most creative, thoughtful people I know. And she's able to ingest information and then switch it back out to clients. Like anything from taking a um, drag queen cooking class through Airbnb and like, how can I transform this into a learning culture in an organization? And so for me, I really admire that and I want to embrace that and how, and how I operate in the world and with my strategic vision for my organization. Hmm. So it was just, um, it was a really nice connection to say there are people and that creativity is a strategy and it does work. Hmm. I mean, obviously. It's hugely important. Yeah. I mean, that is your secret sauce. That yeah. is a that is a company's secret sauce. That will, that is what distinguishes companies from the others. That's that's your moat. Mm -hmm. um, and from a Disney's perspective, that's absolutely critical. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and they have to have the, embrace that and be able to take risks. So when he talks about um, bringing Pixar and Marvel into the yeah. into the company, I found that really interesting too because they're very unique brands and the value system are different. So how do you integrate? such wildly different cultures and values in, in and create a new organization from that while retaining mm. those those similar um, experiences. Yeah, those those three principles that you mentioned, um, he he mentioned he, he he keyed on those because he was able to he, he was able to simplify what the what he wanted to push the direction he wanted to push this huge company into in, in three simple using three simple principles. Mm -hmm. And those are quality would matter most. You need to embrace, te embrace technology and disruption rather than fear it. Embrace it. Uh, that was my favorite. <laughs> and expansion into new markets would be vital. Yeah. And understanding your markets he talks about. So not just expansion, but like doing a deep dive. Because he said when he took over, like Disney was global, but it was very superficial. So like really getting out there and experiencing the people and understanding what they want um, from a deeper perspective and you can give better product. Yeah. One of the big things he did was expand Disney into Shanghai. Yeah. Uh, on a 963-acre campus there, which is the biggest campus in the world, I think, for a, for a Disney theme park. Is it really? I didn't know that. Yeah, and he made something like 70 flights to to China to you know get that park up and running. Amazing. So the amount of value he was able to add to shareholders, Disney shareholders, was incredible, and he did he did a lot of it through acquisition. At the time, he took over. Disney animation was was flailing and he wasn't sure and the people that worked in it weren't sure how to get their mojo back. Yeah. And so one of his approaches for doing that, which is ironic given how upset Roy Disney was about acquiring companies that weren't of Disney bloodlines, you know, he acquired Pixar mm -hmm. from Steve Jobs. 
And I love that he was so nervous to talk to Steve Jobs. He said he was sitting yeah, in the yeah. car and he was sweating, but he wasn't sure if it was the heat or they was pitching a crazy idea. I was so Jobs. glad to hear that because I was He's like, human. that would be me. I'd be really nervous to talk to Steve Jobs. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and the other just kind of beautiful thing about that whole Pixar acquisition was that on the day that that deal was supposed to be signed between Disney and Pixar, Steve Jobs took... Robert Iger on a walk and he sat down on a bench and he put his arm around Bob and he said I am dying of cancer oh. and I don't expect you to go through with this deal um, I, I give you permission to unwind this deal as a result of my health oh my gosh and Bob said Robert Iger said thank you for telling me but we're still going to do this mm-hmm. And I thought that was really, like, I mean, what great men, both of them. Like, mm-hmm. he, you know, Steve Jobs on the one hand being completely honest about his health and saying, look, I'm not going to be here to help, probably not going to be around to help you, you know, merge these two companies and, and make Pixar great inside of Disney. Um, it's going to be on all you. But at the same time, if you want to walk back away from this deal as a result, I totally respect your, your choice. Mm-hmm. And at, and then on Rob Iger's side, you know, thank you for telling me. Thank you for your honesty. But we're still going to move, move forward with that. And, and basically saved Pixar. Yeah. Yeah. And, and gave them a new life and a new uh, raison d'etre inside of Disney. Plus, like Bob Iger, how he talks about negotiations, how he's like, this is it. This is what we got. I'm totally transparent. Um, and setting that positive, authentic tone. Hmm. I mean, these are things that I really value in organizations and with people. And it's really hard to find out it these days. Yeah. I I also picked up on how he approaches deal making. Yeah. Doesn't want to low bid anybody. Yeah. Like, what's the point? Yeah. If, if people are just going to keep ratcheting up and ratcheting up and spending time and money paying lawyers to keep, you know, raising the raising the bid, just just tell them what your max bid is mm-hmm. or, or thereabouts and be totally transparent about it. Yeah. I love that. Because <laughs> that's the way I am. I like that. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. You got a number, give it to them. If you can't go higher, give them your max number and... Let that be your deal. Yeah. And be prepared to walk away. Mm-hmm. So that was good too. The other thing I, I really enjoyed was learning about how Marvel had their uh, business structured. I think Ike Pearl Mooter was the head of Marvel at the time, and he's another interesting character I want to read more about. Um, but uh, they had a book of 7,000 comic characters with backstories. And I could just picture how valuable that would be to somebody who's looking to acquire you. Because yeah. you've, you've got a catalog yep. <laughs> that you can hand over and say, hey, we've got 7,000 characters. We could, we could be writing movies for, for decades on these characters. Yay, comics! <laughs> <laughs> Not only that, but they had scripts that had been written for, a lot, for movies can, uh, for a lot of those characters. Also. Oh, awesome. And so they had a pipeline of movies that they wanted to create at the time Iger came along and looked at them for acquisition. All I know is She-Hulk is coming out soon and I am so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just thought that was a really valuable lesson that if, you know, as a business, mm-hmm. it pays to have a clear direction of where you're going with, uh, you know, 
clear documentation. That catalog just really stuck out at me. Like I could just picture myself as an investor in a company and them saying, hey, here's here's what we have. Here's our creative. Here's a catalog of all of our creativity. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> this is why we're so valuable. Mm-hmm. Like that's just so plain and obvious. Like that, that that's just that's a 10x play right there. Heck yeah. So I really like I really enjoyed uh, reading about the Marvel acquisition and the Pixar acquisition was just wonderful. It's just beautiful, just like everything that Jobs did um, in life and in in action and professional everything. Um, Lucasfilm was also intriguing, mm. and I, f- I felt like George Lucas, you know this this was his legacy, and like he said in the book that. Um, on his tombstone, George Lucas is going to say, here lies the creator of Star Wars. So that, this is how important Star Wars is to George Lucas and how difficult it was for him to sell a company. But one thing Lucasfilm didn't seem to have, according to the book, was a pipeline of new movie releases and ideas. So his They was were just living off of their legacy of what they already had and the technologies they had built to do the things that they had done in the past, but not something that they had for the future. Nevertheless, that brand is hugely well-known, mm-hmm. uh, globally known, and globally valuable. And um, so they, they did that acquisition as well. And then, of course, uh, I think Force Awakens came out after yeah. that, and Mandalorian, and Mandalorian. what else? You know, some other <laughs> But those movies didn't exist until Robert Iger came along and talked to George Lucas and said, hey, I'm interested in buying you. What do you got? Mm-hmm. You know, and then all of a sudden, George Lucas starts writing scripts. Crap, I gotta write I think stuff. I, I think I had that right. He yeah. started writing scripts and said, "Hey, here's three, here's three movies that I would want to do in the future, in the near future." Of course, then he got upset when he got purchased, and they didn't stick to a script. But that's another story. <laughs> so, but that's what happens when uh, you get, you know, when you sell. That's uh, true. And it it can be painful when you've put so much of your life into what the business that you're building mm-hmm. case in point was rupert murdoch's R- rupert murdoch's fox companies 20th century is it 20th yeah 20th century mm-hmm. fox and uh this was another really fascinating angle i don't want to uh, going on and on about this but this was a really fascinating angle in that um R- rupert murdoch and his sons, well, his sons were looking, you know, to take over the company. And this is another, you know, he started this company from scratch and uh, very deeply rooted into the family. And now he's interested in selling it. And so his sons, I think, were a little upset about the whole thing. Um, but the uh, totality of the deal was so big like Rupert Murdoch is that's a really big name the other interesting thing is he's conservative Rupert Murdoch is conservative Fox News you know very conservative conservative news network apparently Bob Iger is not he's a Democrat whatever Um, not that that really mattered in this case but it does to an extent because at the time Robert Iger was thinking of running about president. He played around with the idea of running for president. I so would have voted for him. President of the United States. Mm-hmm. He would have been brilliant. <laughs> I would have voted for him. Totally. Um, but I think this whole... Rup- the irony is, I think this whole Rupert Murdoch ac- acquisition took him off of that, that game wow. plan. Because then he had to focus on this and, and, and pulling in the whole... All these, all, a lot, most of the company assets of 20th Century Fox, 
which also included National Geographic. Um, I thought that was interesting. I didn't know National Geographic was part of 20th Century Fox. I did know that. I didn't realize I got bought by Disney. Yeah, um, it does does not inc- did not include Fox ne- Fox News. So oh, Disney okay. does not okay. own Fox News. Um, just TV, uh, just uh, the film and TV part of it. FX, Fox Networks. I'm not sure how that's. I don't think that includes Fox News. Star India. Um, so that was an interesting angle to me. It seemed like the acquisition of a conservative media conglomerate took Bob Iger out of the running potential running for president Mm. that and his wife i don't think his wife wanted him to run for president (laughs) okay so um that is basically my take on the career arc of robert Iger's run from the bottom rung of the ladder at abc to the very top tippity top of disney just like stephen schwartz did in the back of his book robert Iger has some good quotable lessons learned in the back of his book and I wanted to read some of those. Uh, This first one he says, I talk a lot about the relentless pursuit of perfection. In practice this could mean a lot of things and it's hard to define. It's a mindset more than a specific set of rules. It's not about perfectionism at all costs. It's about creating an environment in which people refuse to accept mediocrity. I really like that death to mediocrity it's about pushing back against the urge to say good enough is good enough i love that it takes it takes work to push back on mediocrity and 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 strive for something above that better than that yes it does it's hard he also says excellence and fairness does not have to be mutually exclusive strive for perfection but always be aware of the pitfalls of caring only about the product and never the people so you got to weigh that against running over people in pursuit of perfection (laughs) another one is don't be in the business of playing it safe be in the business of creating possibilities for greatness that's a good one Um, don't let ambition get ahead of opportunity by fixating on a future job or project, you become impatient with where you are. You don't <laughs> tend enough to the responsibilities you do have, and so ambition can become counterproductive. That's me. <laughs> Good lesson to learn. We all believe we all want to believe we're indispensable. You have to be self-aware enough that you don't cling to the notion that you are the only person who can do this job. At its essence, good leadership isn't about being indispensable. It's about helping others be prepared to step into your shoes. Oh, I love that. I do too. One thing, one of the best quotes I think he he gives, he took from, uh, it's an ideal he took from Michael Eisner. And it's great is often a collection of very small things after all. I absolutely, that's my favorite. Say it again. Favorite quote. Quote unquote, great is a is often a collection of very small things after all it's it's an aggregation of very small efforts very small shots of perfection i love that and in the context of michael eisner it's about micromanaging because michael eisner did a lot of micromanaging because mm-hmm. he, he was a real perfectionist about the smallest details um and then he's got one here that i Underline, no one wants to follow a pessimist, so I got to keep remembering that. That's why you married an optimist. <laughs> I'm very pessimistic. <laughs> Technological advancements will eventually make older business models obsolete. Heck yes. 
So don't be scared of technology and innovation. Embrace it. A lot of companies acquire others without much sensitivity toward what they're really buying. They think they're getting physical assets or manufacturing assets or intellectual property. But usually what they're really acquiring is people. In creative business, that's where the value lies. Absolutely. That's the secret sauce. The it's the people and the creativity they bring to the table. I and mean, the culture. When you think of Pixar and Marvel, and, yeah. and the, I mean, come on. The, yeah. Animations, the Disney animation, it's just critical. Yeah. And I think any company can become even greater by focusing on how creative they can be, their creative assets. Absolutely. Creating a culture of creativity and feedback and risk. I mean, you can be so powerful as a culture. Yeah. And finally, my, my most favorite, favorite quote is this one. If you're in the business of making something, <laughs> be in the business of making something great. Drop the microphone right there. <laughs> That's just fantastic. That's a beautiful I really like this book. Uh, Robert Iger is really calming. You can just, his voice is very calming. Uh, I, I, I totally get why he's a great leader. Um, love his quotes in the back. Love the stories. Love, love the acquisitions of Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm. And even uh, Fox, really fascinating. Good mm -hmm. lessons there. Yeah. Highly and, recommend The Ride of a Lifetime by Robert Iger. And, and yeah, and if you don't want to read the whole book, I highly recommend listening to the Masterclass. Masterclass. So thanks for listening. Um, we'll be back here in a week or two. Sounds good. Cheers. Bye.